This is our final week um, in the book of Colossians. Um, I was thinking it might take the next couple of weeks, but I'm confident I should land this today. Um, Some of you are breathing a sigh of relief, uh, thinking, thank goodness, um, how have you made this four-chapter book last so long? Um, And as we've said uh, in previous weeks, Colossians uh, is a letter uh, written by this character called the Apostle Paul, um, who um, is uh, this prolific church planter. He was the chief of all sinners. He was this persecutor of the church, and suddenly he, his life gets overcome uh, by the presence of Jesus, so much so he goes and, and he plants churches all over the Mediterranean, and, um, and he's responsible for writing much of the New Testament. And, and so Paul writes this letter to the church in Colossae. And Colossae was about 100 miles uh, outside of Ephesus, which is now modern-day Turkey. And uh, he writes this letter during his imprisonment in Rome. And from what we can tell, uh, Paul never... This music stand's going to go down. Um, Paul never met this church um, he never made it to the church of Colossae, and uh, he didn't plant this church. Actually, one of his disciples planted this church, and, and, and yet Paul is still con- concerned uh, for the needs of the church in Colossae. And so he writes this letter, uh, just like he writes many of his other letters, addressing a problem uh, in, in the life of the local church. And, um, and we've touched on a number of those themes uh, in uh, the last couple of weeks, uh, you, you might remember. And, um, and this is typical of Paul's letters. He would often write in this way. And uh, so you might remember, he starts by warning them of a group called the Judaizers. And, and this, this group, the Judaizers, really were a group of people who infiltrated churches, telling new converts uh, who had accepted Christ that actually Jesus wasn't enough. That in order to follow Jesus, it's Jesus plus something else. It's, it's Jesus plus keeping the Jewish law. It's Jesus plus eating or refraining from eating certain foods. It's Jesus plus, uh, you know, taking part in certain festivals or traditions or whatever it might be. And Paul says, no, that isn't the case. It's, it's not Jesus plus. He says, he says this, he says, do not let anyone judge you for what you eat or drink, or for what religious festivals you observe. These things were but a shadow. The real reality is found in Jesus. It's not Jesus plus anything else. It's just Jesus. The other thing that we were uh, looking at that, that Paul was addressing was this idea of synchronism. Uh, synchronism is defined this way. It's an attempted amalgamation of different religions, cultures, and schools of thought. And synchronism uh, for the church in Colossae was in the context of this thing we call uh, the Roman Empire. And so as we've, as we've been saying, synchronism uh, was shaped by the Roman Empire, primarily and ironically through the development of things like uh, the Roman road system. And, uh, and so, as we, as we said before, uh, this, this network of roads that uh, made up the empire suddenly made it a lot smaller and a lot faster. 
And, and when things, when societies, when cultures get faster and smaller, this thing of synchronism happens because suddenly uh, people are exposed to different cultures, different ideas, different religious convictions, different thoughts, different ethics. And, and, and what happens is people begin to cherry pick. You know, they think, I like that idea and oh, I quite like what those people have to say. And, and they begin to kind of make up their own kind of system of belief and ethics and morals. And, and this is this whole amalgamation of, of different thoughts. One of the parallels we can draw from in our own culture uh, to get a kind of idea of what was going on was, was life pre and post the internet. Uh, so for those of you who are millennials, this makes no sense whatsoever. But there was a time when the internet never existed. And, um, and, and then all of a sudden, uh, this thing called the internet was available to us. And, and so the, 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 the culture and, and the world around us suddenly got smaller uh, because all of a sudden we could access so many different other places and, and the world felt smaller and information was transferred so much quicker. Uh, and, 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 and so that, that kind of feeling of life post the internet, um, you know, if you're somewhere between, I don't know, 30 and 50, you will get this, okay? If you're younger than that, you won't. Uh, and if you're older than that, oh well. Um, uh, <laughs> sorry. Um, uh, um, but there is, so there is this sense, um, but that's what was going on for the, the, the people in the empire. There was this recognition that life was, the world was suddenly smaller and things were, were speeding up and therefore this thing of synchronism uh, stepped in. And, 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 and so again, Paul addresses this idea that as, as followers of Jesus, it's not, it can't be based on this eclectic collection of ideas. We can't collect the best things from the, the places that we like um, and come up with our own version of a saviour. And, you know, even Christians do this, don't they? You know, they, they go on YouTube and then they post it on Facebook. And, and it's just, just some ludicrous thing that's kind of outside of Christology and outside of the kind of orthodox tenets of the church. And they think, oh, look, I've come up with a new idea. No, you've been watching YouTube. Um, and so synchronism doesn't always work that well. And, and, and kind of the over arcing theme of this letter is this idea, as followers of Jesus, we're not meant to let the the culture hijack our imagination for a bigger story. And the the quote that we've been repeatedly saying throughout this series is from the book Colossians Remixed, and it says this. It says, when a whole population dreams the same dream, empire is triumphant. An alternative to the empire requires different dreams animated by a different narrative. And so this week, um, to finish up in Colossians, we're actually going to turn back to Colossians chapter 1. And um, we're going to look from verse 15. And uh, we're going to look at this passage of Scripture. It's actually a poem um, that Paul writes And it's a really clever poem that I haven't got much time to go into this morning, but it's the way it's constructed uh, is is really interesting. But it says this: it says, "The sun is the image 
of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all the fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through the blood he shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because uh, your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. This um, past weekend, Tammy and I um, started watching a, a TV series called The Man in the High Castle. I don't know if any of you have seen that. It's quite, it's quite good. A few episodes hit. I'm a few episodes in, so don't spoil it. Uh, don't spoil it for me. But the idea of this show uh, is, is he's really kind of painting a premise that what would life be like if the Allied forces um, didn't win the Second World War? And um, in this world, which is set in 1960s America, America is split into two halves. Basically, the east coast of the US is controlled by Nazi Germany, and then the west coast is ruled by Japan. And then there's this small band of people known as the resistance who, who, who are fighting uh, for their freedom. And in this show, uh, which you can watch on Amazon Prime, um, you can binge. Uh, I don't think you can watch it on anything else. Um, I, I don't get paid to tell you that. It's on Amazon Prime. Um, um, and, and so in this show, the, um, and I say I'm only a few episodes in, so don't spoil it for me if you're ahead of me. Um, the protagonists in the story, they discover some film reels. And these, um, these film reels show footage of people like Winston Churchill and Harry Truman, and, um, and they show a different story. They show a story where the Allies won the war. And, and so for, for, for these, these characters in this story, there's this, this mystery of an alternative story that's different to the one that they are living in. And in many ways, um, the Apostle Paul is trying to say a similar thing to these young believers in the church of Colossae, that there's a bigger and better story for you to experience, to engage with. There's There's a different story to the one the empire is showing you. And you know, the reality of that is as true for us today as it was then. You may, have, um, you may have heard different people commentate about our culture, uh, that, we, that we live increasingly in what they call a postmodern culture. Uh, and this, this idea 
um, that in our, in our culture, we reject the idea of there being one big overarching story that trumps all other stories. And, 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 and actually, our culture questions the fact that, that actually there is a big story that helps us make sense of all human existence. And, um, and so there is a, a rejection of this thing that we often refer to as a meta-narrative. And, and, and you know, for, for the church, that's, that's a challenge, isn't it? Because when, when we stand up and we say, you know, the redemptive purposes of God are found in this person, Jesus Christ, and him alone, that's a meta-narrative. That's, that's a, a, a big, that's the real story. That's a story that beats other stories. Yet the world around us rejects that idea and embraces this idea that there are competing stories, that there's not one truth but a collection of truths, there's, that, that all stories become like power plays within our culture. And so when we remove the idea of one big story holding human meaning and existence together, uh, what we do as people is that we often turn in on ourselves. We do what sociologists call expressive uh, individualism. And what that means is because there's no one big story to be trusted, because we can no longer turn to traditional mechanisms that we find our place in, we start to look to ourselves. And human existence in our our culture is often reduced to self-elevation, and and, and it's really our lives come down to what I can achieve as, as an individual. And the interesting thing uh, about the culture at large is this is that, is that as this, in, within that framework, we are often invited or told to become consumers. And the, the fact is, uh, is that um, life in our culture can often be reduced to what we can consume. And we love to consume, don't we? And uh, even though our culture doesn't like the idea of big stories anymore uh, and this meta-narrative... It's still, and it has this kind of dis- distinct mistrust of the idea that there is one big story. We still buy into the idea of story. We, we still are religious beings. We still like to do religious things. I don't know if you've noticed that. Uh, we still like to be religious. James, a guy called James Smith in his book, uh, You Are What You Love, he, he says this, he says, He says, we often hear of brand loyalty, even brand devotion. But do people really worship brands? Is consumerism really such a liturgical experience? It may not be as far-fetched as you think. In a recent study to consider the effects of super brands like Apple and Facebook, researchers made an interesting discovery. When they analysed the brain activity of, uh, of uh, product fanatics like members of the Apple cult, I don't know what that is, uh, and they, they, found, they, they found that the Apple products are triggering the same bits of their brain as religious imagery triggers 
in a person of faith. This is your brain on Apple. It's like it's worshipping. We, we were joking about this last night at a barbecue, but I can't wait to buy one of those Apple speakers that are coming out at Christmas. And my wife's saying, why? And because I want the pleasure of owning one of these Apple speakers at Christmas. Um, and, 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 but there is this reality, isn't it, that we, although we don't like to admit it, it's true. And, and you, it might not be the latest Apple product for you, but I bet if you could replace that Apple product with something, you would come to the same conclusions, the same experiences to a lesser or greater degree. And so we shouldn't be surprised by this. It shouldn't be a, a surprising thing. Our culture continually tells us if something's broken, if you're lonely, if you're depressed, if you're in pain, then buy the latest product because it will make you feel better. Uh, it could even change your life. That's why I bought an Apple Watch. Um, and see, consumerism says we need to acquire more goods and services to address the broken elements of our life. And when we analyze this, when we stop and think about this, that's just messed up, isn't it? It's just, that's just crazy, just crazy. This belief that salvation comes through consumption. And so with the backdrop of this thing called the Roman Empire and the backdrop of our own cultural experiences, what does Paul have to say to us in this poem, uh, this poem in verse 15? What alternative story does he want to reveal? Well, let's start in verse 15. He says, well, he says this, the sun is the image of the invisible God. Now, that word image is important because images were what dominated and symbolized the, the, the Roman Empire. Images of Caesar would have been found in the marketplace, in the city streets, in the schools, in the gymnasiums. That, um, that, that these images formed this narrative that Caesar was Lord and the empire was supreme. And we all understand how that works, don't we? We, we all understand how the right images uh, used in the right way create the right brands and the sense of loyalty and a, a sense of identification. And we see what Paul does is he's, he's subverting everything um, that, that makes the culture what it is. He's subverting everything that makes the empire what, he, what it is. And he says, the, the real image of God, it's not found in Caesar. The real image of God is not found in the prevalence of the empire or, or how well the power systems rule over you. He says, Jesus is the image of God. He's the firstborn in all of creation. As one commentator says this, he says, in a world populated by images of Caesar, who is taken to be the son of God, a world in which the empire's preeminence over all things is um, bolstered by political structures. Paul's poem is nothing, nothing less than treason. 
In this sense, a short, well-crafted three-verse poem, Paul subverts every major claim of the empire, turning them on their heads and proclaiming Christ to be the creator, redeemer, and lord of all creation, including the empire. Christ alone is the image of God. It's not Caesar, it's not Rome, but Christ alone. And what that should prompt in us, what that should cause us to ask is, is, is what are the things, what are the images, what are the, the narratives in our culture that claim lordship, that claim our allegiance over the place of Christ? And we all have to address those things, don't we? It's Christ alone. He is the image of God. He goes on, he's the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Now we can read that and it sounds a little bit confusing because it sounds like He's saying Jesus was a created being. But actually what Paul is saying here is, is much bigger than that. And, uh, and, and he's actually speaking into a cultural understanding. And this cultural understanding is that by law, the firstborn, um, the firstborn male in a family were, was entitled to inherit all of his, his parents' estates when they, when they, when they died that, you know, that um, parents didn't divvy up their assets and give them to each of their children, but it was the firstborn who was given everything, inherited everything. And, and, and as the firstborn received that inheritance, they became responsible for their extended family. And, and, and so what Paul is saying is, is that it all belongs to him. He's the one. He's the firstborn in all creation. It's all his. The Greek word is uh, protos, protot o chaos, and, um, which means preeminence. And, and, and Jesus is essentially, he's the first. He's the preeminent. And, and, and Paul, Paul is kind of boldly and subversively saying Jesus is the one through whom and for whom The whole of creation is made in the first place. He's the one who created all things, and he's the one who all things were created for, and he holds them all together. He's preeminent. It belongs belongs to him. You know, the sea, the sky, the mountaintops, the cities, the... um, um, All of culture, everything that we can think of is his. It's not the Roman Empire. It's not Caesar's. And, and, and so there's this direct challenge being made regarding the preeminence of the empire and, and all that that represents. And Paul's saying, it doesn't belong to them. It's not theirs. It belongs to Christ. He says he's built for all things and in him all things hold together. You see, anything that has a beginning begins in him. 
You see, there was a time when the Roman Empire, it didn't exist. But there wasn't a time before Jesus Christ. Everything begins in him. And so he holds things to, all things together. Jesus is the glue that holds it all together. It's not the, the might or the power of the Roman Empire. It's not how well their military can serve, but it's Jesus. And then it says, verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. And then Paul, he repeats himself. And he, he links Jesus' preeminence in creation to the outcome of, of sin and salvation. Not only does Jesus rule over creation, but he also rules over all of new creation. He says he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. So that in everything he might have, and here's the, here's the killer word, the supremacy. And you see, in all of Paul's writings, in all 13 of the books that he wrote in the New Testament, only three of them talk about the supremacy of Christ. Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. And all of these letters were written while Paul is in prison. And you see, it's in in prison while Paul is waiting to go before Caesar himself that Paul begins to understand the supreme power of Christ. And you see, Paul wasn't saying everything about the Roman Empire was wrong, just like not all things in our culture are that bad. I actually think Apple's quite good. Um, But what Paul is doing is, is, he says, says, let's hold up to the empire. Let's hold up to the culture, uh, any, any claims that supremacy has, and hold it against what Jesus has to say. And when we do... When we do that, we realize there's no power, there's no authority, there's no political system, there's no product on the market, there's no one single thing that we can consume that holds up to the supremacy, supremacy of Christ in all of creation. To go back to the language we were using before, there's no other story that competes with the story that Jesus has to tell. And, you know, Jesus doesn't just have a better story, but he, he is the better story. You see, he's the one who brings true peace and reconciliation. Verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through the blood he shed on the cross. You see, Rome had a peace. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Rome had a peace, the, the Pax Romana. And, 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 and Rome's version of peace came through tyranny. It came through the sword. But Jesus' peace comes through sacrifice. He has a better story. There's a better narrative to tell. And, you know, and I don't want to be too overly simplistic here, but I think, I think with these claims, it makes clear that there's, there's no earthly ruler. You know, God isn't phased by Donald Trump. 
Uh, we might be. Um, he isn't phased by Brexit. You know, there's no political system or party who can bring peace and reconciliation the way that Christ brings himself. And as followers of Jesus, we might engage with those things, and I think it's good for us to do that. It's good for us to engage in the political systems of our world. But the reality is we can't fully trust them, can we? That isn't where our trust fully lies, because we believe Jesus Jesus' story is a better story. It beats the other stories. As Alistair McIntyre, the philosopher, said, he says, I can only answer this question, what I'm to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story do I find myself a part? You see, we can't get away from the fact that Living life in the context of a narrative is what helps us make sense of the world. And, you know, the world is, is full of stories to tell, competing stories. And yet we believe Jesus' story is the supreme one. See, Jesus comes into the world and he, he, he's redeeming a people for himself. He's building a, a new humanity on earth. It says this in, in verse 21, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and freedom from accusation. See, as Jesus' followers were saying that his story his version of reality is more real than any other. That's an audacious claim, isn't it? Now, we could, we could say, well, you can make that claim, Steve. But I think I'm just going to lean into some other things that the culture says. Maybe that, that expressive individualism you mentioned where you just look to yourself for the answers, where you, we just examine ourselves and discover our de deepest desires and we just go and do that. The problem with that is, I don't know about you, but our desires are always changing, aren't they? There's often so many competing desires. You know, I go to a restaurant and there's lots of competing desires because uh, I think I want that one and I want that one, I want that one. Uh, but we have these competing desires within us. And even if we can narrow them down uh, to our deepest desires, the reality is our desires always change over time. Those of you who are in your mid-twenties right now... Um, if you was to think back to when you was like 15, 16 years of age, and, and think about what you hoped and dreamed for then, what do you make of that now? You probably think, I was an idiot. Didn't you? You know, if we're, if we're honest, I was going to be a DJ when I was 15. Um, I've got shares in a set of SL1210 record decks. I just haven't seen them for 25 years. And... Um, but most of us, if we were to look back to the dreams and desires we had 10 years ago, we'd think, 
what on earth was I thinking? Why did I think that was even a sensible thing to say or do? I'm about to turn 40. <sighs> and, um, you know, when I, when I look back to some of the things I thought and were passionate about when I was 30, I think, what an idiot. And, and no doubt when I'm 60, I'll look back to when I was 40 and I'll say, what an idiot. You know, basically, we're all idiots. And, um, and, and if you've got a takeaway for today, is that. You're an idiot. Uh, <laughs> um, um, but often, you know, what we think is best for ourselves in the moment is not the same, is it, two years later or five years later or ten years from now. And often we, we are left in that place where we're like, what was I thinking? Why on earth did I think that was a good idea? You see, trying to find existence, uh, a meaning for existence from within ourselves is unstable at best. We all need a bigger story, a bigger narrative, uh, a a, a bigger story to, to make sense of what life is really all about. And essentially what Paul has been saying all through this letter is that story is not found in the empire. It's not found in Rome. It's not found in the security that you think they've brought you. It's not found in your culture. It's not found in the things that you give yourself to on a daily basis. It's not found in systems and sovereignties outside of Jesus himself. He's the better story. He's the one worth investing in. He's the one who makes life worth living. That all of us are called to live a different life in the context of this thing we call a culture, a society, and yet we're called to live differently for the, for the sake of a reconciling kingdom that Jesus brings. And so as we've been saying over the last few weeks, what Paul is essentially saying is, is that our hope, our trust, our security, our identity, our calling isn't found in anyone else other than Jesus Christ himself. Amen? Amen. Sorry? Yeah, two sets, if that's right. And so what we're going to do, um, I've asked Tammy to come and read um, a poem, uh, which is actually a, a reconstruction of this passage that we've just read. And um, so what I'd love us to do is um, I'll get Tammy to read this, and then Phil's going to come and, uh, and share something as well. And then we're just going to have a chance to respond. So you can get, make yourself comfortable or whatever, what you need to do. And um, Tammy will read this to us. In an image-saturated world, a world of ambiguous corporate logos permeating your consciousness, a world of dehydrated and captive imaginations in which we are too numbered, satiated and co-opted to be able to dream of life otherwise, a world in which the empire of global economic affluence has achieved the monopoly of our imaginations. In this world, Christ is the image 
of the invisible God. Christ is the image par excellence, the image above all other images, the image that is not a facade, the image that is not trying to sell you anything, the image that refuses to co-opt you. He is the source of a liberated imagination, a subversion of the empire, because it all starts with him and it all ends with him. Everything, all things, whatever you can imagine. Visible and invisible, mountain and atoms, outer space, urban space and cyberspace. Whether it be the institutionalized power structures of the state, the academy or the market, all things have been created in him and through him. He is their source, their purpose, their goal. In the face of a disconnected world, where home is a domain in cyberspace, where neighborhood is a chat room, where public space is a shopping mall, where information technology promises a tuned in, reconnected world, all things hold together in Christ. The creation is a deeply personal cosmos, all cohering and interconnected in Jesus, because grace makes beauty out of ugly things. All things are reconciled in him. And it all happens on a cross. It all happens at a state execution, where the governor did not commute the sentence. It all happens at the hands of an empire that has captured our imagination. It all happens through blood, not through a power grab by the sovereign one. It all happens in embrace pain. For the sake of others, it all happens on a cross, arms outstretched in embrace. And this is the image of the invisible God. This is the body of Christ.